Hello everyone, just a quick intro to today's episode. We dive more into the science of nutrition and how the body works alongside it. Dr. Tommy explains things quite well with good analogies, but perhaps a couple of plays of this podcast is needed to really understand our deep dive into some of the subjects. However, stay tuned for my summary afterwards where I break things down a little bit further but enjoy this one today. Here it is, Dr. Tommy Wood. Hello and welcome back to Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast, everybody. I am aware that I always say we have a very exciting guest on the podcast for you, but today we really do have a very exciting guest on the podcast for you. We have Dr. Tommy Wood. And I don't usually do this, but I'm going to read off some of the things that I've read about Dr. Tommy Wood's credentials. He's is a research assistant professor of pediatrics in University of Washington, the neonatal division, but his majority of the work is on developing therapy for brain injury on newborns. It also includes adults and he looks at metabolic diseases as well as nutritional approaches to sport. He has a bachelor's in biochemistry, natural sciences from Cambridge, medical degree from Oxford, PhD, physiology and neurosciences. He's been a coach to professional athletes and works with optimizing strategies for F1 drivers, not to mention being a director of British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. So how he has found find time to come and talk to me today, I will never know, but I am very, very grateful that you're here, Tommy. And uh, it, what I'm about on my podcast is nutrient density. I've just recently talked to Marty Kendall from Australia, oh, yeah. who, who um, said he, he spoke to you before about uh, nutrient density. And, and we, we thrashed about that a little bit there. But if you could just lend your thoughts to us about what, what you think nutrient density is and how that can benefit us. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> I'll just start by saying very happy to be here. And I don't think I've ever turned down a podcast invite. And I'm always happy to talk to one person as I would be to talk to lots of people. So I'm super happy to be here and, and, and privileged and honored that you'd invite me on. Um, nutrient density. Yeah, so it's an, it's, an important, uh, it's an important question. And basically, when anybody asks me about you know, dietary approaches to health, I think that's essentially what it, what it comes down to. Um, and any or the majority of sustainable health promoting diets focus on removing highly processed nutrient poor calorie dense foods and increasing usually less calorie dense but very nutrient dense uh, minimally processed foods and some people get like super worked up about the fact that yes cooking is a processing strategy which we use to improve the nutrient density of our food so when i say processed i mean like it comes out of a packet and looks nothing like something that was, you know, grown or raised on a farm. That, that, that's what I mean by processing. But obviously, one of the interesting things about us as a species is that we are probably the only cucinivores, which is a fancy word for we cook our food. Um, but because of the fact that we cook our food, we can increase its nutrient density. And that is obviously very important to our health. But to do that, we just start with something that has nutrients in it. Um, which is going to be the majority of animal foods, um, meat and organ meat particularly, uh, but also potentially dairy if you tolerate that, and then a wide variety 
our plant foods also have a, a large number of nutrients and form you know the basis of, of, of the, the diets of a number of healthy populations so these are just foods as they look from the animal you hunted or you raised or the plant that you picked or dug up from the ground uh, I think, I these think are the foods that sort of form the basis of, of nutrient density and, and health promotion yeah i think that's great when you put it like that it's basically just real food real things we can go yeah. outside and get and um, you, you said then about plants and on this podcast, uh, sometimes I get misrepresented and people think that I'm all about carnivore because uh-huh. I promote animal foods so much. Mm-hmm. But it's perhaps to the fact that a lot of people will say that the nutrients and the vitamins and minerals are more bioavailable from animal produce than they are plants. And uh, we've spoken before about how you can still get vitamins and minerals and nutrients from plants. Um, but is it the case, really, that they are more bioavailable from animal produce than they are from plants? Um, often, yes. Uh, but it probably depends a little bit on the person as well. So if you are somebody who recently, ancestrally, and we're talking maybe in the last thousand years or so, if you're somebody whose ancestors lived closer to the equator and therefore probably got more of their um, uh, foods from plant sources because they're available year round, essentially, then you probably have a kind of makeup that makes it easier for you to turn plant vitamins into human vitamins. So you may be good at converting beta carotene into vitamin A, um, or you may be good at turning uh, precursors of long chain omega-3 fatty acids. So, you know, we talk about fish oil, EPA and DHA is incredibly important for the brain. Um, you may be good at converting precursors like alpha linolenic acid, which is the plant omega-3. You might be good at converting that into EPA and DHA, whereas people who got most of their fats from animal sources or from seafood, they, they were never very good at that because they didn't need to be. And there's still some evidence to support those things. So depending on who you are, you may well be able to turn a majority of plant nutrients into usable human nutrients. But if you want them in the form that we use them straight away, and that can be beneficial for people who, again, different ancestral makeups or, you know, that their you know, gut physiology isn't great. And so they're not great at absorbing things. They just want things, you know, as easily accessible as possible. Then, you know, the iron and the minerals and multiple of the vitamins are already in there form that a mammal would use them like us because that's the form that they're in the tissues in the animals so so yes there's a number of nutrients that are more bioavailable in animal foods and plant foods that doesn't mean that plant foods aren't potentially good sources but that's going to be a bit more variable from person to person yeah so what you're saying is it could come down to genetics in one way and say that wherever you're from in the world and whatever your genes are then it could help you get more or or not get more as cases from plants and 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 things like that so not everybody's the same and it's important not to put everybody under the same umbrella and say well this particular plant is not bioavailable and the nutrients from that is not bioavailable same um on the on the other side you may be you may be able to get that and you may not and that's what you're saying and that's that's a brilliant way to put it and and we do also it's worth saying that we do also adapt a certain amount so one thing that people who are less favorable towards plants you know people in the carnival community they talk about anti-nutrients or things in plants that sort of bind the minerals say so that we can't absorb them as well so phytates in plants reduce the amount that we can absorb iron or zinc or some of these other minerals 
but there's, we can also adapt to it a little bit. So if we have a diet that's high in phytates in these sort of plant compounds, we become better at absorbing those minerals. Um, so it's, it's, it's like a complex balance of you know, what your body's primed to be able to absorb and you know, what you normally eat because that sort of helps train the system as well. It's great what the human body can do. <laughs> it can it's, adapt I mean, to we're, we're, we're fabulously adaptable and fabulously resilient as a species. I mean, that sort of allowed us to dominate the world as we have. So the, the, the main thing, like my main issue against something like a strict carnivore diet is that humans should be able to thrive eating pretty much anything, right? Like how else have we completely like dominated the planet and survived in incredibly various environments is because we can basically eat most things um, and survive pretty well doing it. So I think there's an incredible robustness and resilience in the system that we should remember is there, like it's an important part of who we are. I think that's what fuels a lot of the arguments around nutrition, things like that, is because there is such a diverse way of managing to eat and managing to survive and managing to thrive that not Absolutely. everybody's going to be the same. So yeah. that's that's where it all comes from. But yeah. um, like I say, where we come from is nutrient-dense food. And if you can use that as a baseline and then go from there, and um, whether you choose animal produce or plants or whatever mm. you, whatever you choose, I think I think if you focus on your, your micronutrients and then you're not going to go far wrong. Um, now, I'd love to dive into insulin a little bit. I know insulin is something that has had a, a bad press in the past, but to, um, firstly, just, just let our listeners know what insulin actually is and how it goes around our body and, and, and functions in our body. Sure. So insulin is kind of, at the moment in the world, synonymous with glucose and carbohydrates. And it's a, it's a hormone. It's a protein hormone released by the pancreas. And the reason that we know about insulin and glucose particularly is that type one diabetics don't make insulin. And so they have very, very high levels of blood sugar. And historically they would basically waste away and die because they couldn't make any insulin. It's incredibly important for regulating the amount of energy that's circulating in our, in our bodies. It's one of the key ways that we do that. Um, however, when people talk about insulin, they, they say that it basically drives glucose or sugar as an energy source into your cells. But that's not really true. It's basically a bit backwards. But the reason we think that again is because it's tied back to type one diabetes where if you have very high blood sugars, if you give insulin, the blood sugars come down, right? So you think, well, somehow insulin is making all that glucose disappear. And, and a small amount of insulin is needed to allow glucose to go into cells, that's true. But in like a, a normal person who makes their own insulin, what uh, insulin is actually doing is stopping your body releasing energy from its stores into the system that then looks like glucose. And then the glucose that's being taken up is actually sort of naturally taken up as a result of the activity of the cell. So like our muscles, if we exercise, we take up a lot more glucose um, and muscles are a great buffer for blood sugar but that doesn't require insulin to like shove extra in those those your muscles will just take it up because of the act, the activity of moving them so what insulin does in that setting is the first of all it gets released in the pancreas and then it acts on cells right next door to stop the production of something called glucagon and glucagon is the opposite essentially of insulin and it's there to raise blood sugar it's there to say hey, you know, we don't have any energy coming in, we don't have any circulating blood sugar, 
So we're going to start to break down fat tissue. We're going to start to break down muscle tissue and we're going to turn those into glucose. So we have some energy, particularly for the brain. Like if you don't have enough energy going to the brain, all of this is a moot point. You're, you're essentially completely useless and potentially dead. So it's critical that this is regulated that way. So then the level of insulin and glucagon, they basically act on the liver to say, should the liver be making glucose or not? So when you're not eating, if you're fasting, the liver is going to make lots of glucose through something called gluconeogenesis. And then that's going to help fuel the body. And that's going to come from uh, muscle tissue, amino acids from the muscles breaking down and uh, the, the top of fat molecules, glycerol, was you breaking down from your fat tissue. That's going to get turned into glucose by the liver. And then insulin, after it's sort of tuned the pancreas in the liver, it's going to go out into the body and it's going to say, hey, insulin is up because we've just eaten. That means energy is on the way. So we don't need to break down tissues. So it's going to stop the breakdown of muscle tissue and it's going to stop the breakdown of fat tissue. Um, and so those like precursors aren't going to the liver to be made into glucose anymore. And that's basically the main role of insulin. And the, the normal amounts that insulin goes up and down after meals and things like that, what it's doing is it's putting the brakes on breaking down tissue and it's telling the liver, we don't need to make any more glucose. Um, and then actually the glucose being taken up by cells sort of is, is what we call a substrate driven process. It's basically, if there's more glucose in your blood, your cells will take up more to try and get rid of it. You don't need extra insulin to do that job. So it, it basically all comes back down to making sure that you have enough energy, but not too much circulating at any given time. Because if you don't have enough, your brain doesn't work, your heart doesn't work. These are critical functions to you staying alive. But if there's too much, they can be, it can be damaging. And that can be too much in terms of circulating fats or free fatty acids, circulating glucose, circulating ketones if you're on a ketogenic diet. Too much can have negative effects because that, those, that sort of extra sort of binds onto things and reacts to things that you, you don't necessarily want it to do and it can cause oxidative stress and inflammation. So insulin is basically our key regulator of making sure we have enough circulating energy uh, at all times. Yeah, and it also affects, like you say, every single cell in the body it is like mm. the only hormone to do so. And uh, what, what I was just going to say when I nearly jumped in was the fact that if, if glucose is high, if you're consuming it the whole time, if your if your nutrition, if your diet is high in glucose, then this leads to like insulin resistance. All these cells become um, so then they're not acting in the proper way that they should because they are resistant to the insulin. So sort of, this is, that's, that's the story that we're told by people who are pro low carb diets. And I am one of those people, you know, if, if I was going to recommend to somebody, you know, who has, um, you know, excess adipose, adiposity, as you might call it, you know, they have too much, a lot of body fat and they're trying to lose body fat, or if they have type two diabetes or some kind of metabolic disease, my personal preference is that you go on something that looks like a low carbohydrate diet, um, low, particularly low in refined carbohydrates um, and higher in protein. There's lots of potential benefits there. But so people talk about, you know, if you eat carbohydrate all the time, your insulin is high all the time. And then high any, you know, any time you have high something in physiology, you basically create a feedback loop to try and turn down the signal. And it's the same with any hormone. So if you take a whole boatload of testosterone, your uh, testicles will say, we don't need to make any more of this because we've got loads coming in, right? So it turns down the signal. And so, and it's the same with any hormone. Um, and so 
the theory goes that if insulin is high all the time because of the refined carbohydrates in the diet, and um, specifically what's interesting is when you process carbohydrates, and to some extent protein, but it's much less important for this, when you process carbohydrates, you sort of dissociate the macronutrient content, which is the carbohydrate content, from the hormonal response. So for the same amount of carbohydrate, you get a much bigger insulin spike. That's basically the downside of food processing is you dissociate the macronutrients and the calories from the normal hormonal response. You create these big exaggerated responses that sort of like trick our brain into thinking things that, it, that aren't necessarily happening. Um, so, it, so the story goes, if you have high carbohydrates in the diet all the time, you have high insulin, and then that high signal sort of creates this feedback loop that, that turns down the signal from insulin says, you know, too much creates insulin resistance. But I don't think that's necessarily true either. Um, so what instead happens is it seems like insulin resistance starts in our fat tissue. And so your fat is the first tissue to become insulin resistant. And it's because of a, a variety of things. So there's a genetic component, there's an inflammation component. Um, there's some other things that feed into it, but basically each person has a certain amount of subcutaneous fat. So you know, like the main fat that sits like over your abs and it's kind of like wobbly. Um, that's your subcutaneous fat. And that's basically your main buffer for energy, right? If you have too much, it gets stored there. If you don't have enough, it gets pulled out there. And you know, that's important for us to have good metabolic health is that we have plenty of subcutaneous fat or like a buffer there. And when that store gets full, and what is full for you is not the same as full for me. It, 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 it sort of, there's a lot of things that feed into that. So some people can get insulin resistant without very much body fat. And there is a genetic disorder called lipodystrophy where you don't have any fat stores. So these guys are super ripped, but they have no buffer. They're also incredibly insulin resistant because their fat stores are full because they don't have any. Whereas sumo wrestlers have huge amounts of body fat but they are also quite insulin sensitive because of all the exercise they do, right? So there's a whole spectrum. That's just the important thing to remember, there's a spectrum. And so once your fat stores are full, then what happens is you get insulin resistance in those tissues because they're saying like, we don't have any more space, right? We can't store anymore. And there's like, to some extent, insulin, insulin drives how, it doesn't drive how fat goes into your fat tissue but it does regulate where the fat comes out of it, right? It's, it's kind of like, if you think about your bath, so your fat is your is a bathtub. The tap is almost always on, right? There's always fat going into your fat tissue. And insulin is the plug. So is the plug in or not? And when you're insulin resistant, so those tissues are full, they're insulin resistant, then what happens is your plug isn't working anymore, right? It's full of holes or something, it's disintegrated. And so, you're sort of, you get this high turnover, we call it. And so like, there's all these, all this fat spilling out of the fat tissue when insulin is trying to say, hey, you know, we've got plenty of energy. You don't need to spill fat out of the fat tissue, but then it's coming out anyway. It's going to the liver and it's being turned into glucose, which results in high blood sugar levels. So it's not that the high insulin causes insulin resistance. It's that you get to a point where your tissues aren't listening to insulin anymore and they're, they're sort of breaking down continuously and sending these precursors of glucose to the liver and all the liver can do is turn it into glucose. So, you know, there's some elements of truth to the story, but kind of where exactly insulin is acting and how you end up with high blood sugar, which is one of the easiest ways we can tell that somebody has some kind of metabolic disease. Um, you know, I think that that's sort of like a, a little bit misunderstood. 
So if somebody is listening and thinking, how do I know if I am insulin resistant or not? How do I know whether my lower carb kind of nutrition is working for me? How do I know if I'm, um, I used to be insulin resistant, I'm now heading towards in insulin sensitivity. How do I know whereabouts on the road I am for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, by measuring your fasting blood sugar is a, is a great starting point. Um, and you can, you can buy, it's like 20 quid. You can go down to Boots and get a blood sugar monitor or you can get it off Amazon or, or wherever. Um, there are obviously much fancier ways to do this. So now we have continuous glucose monitors where you basically put an electrode in your arm and it will basically tell you about your blood sugar 24 hours a day for usually 10 to 14 days, depending on, on the unit. Um, and actually in the UK, it's easier to get some of them than it is in the US where you often need a prescription, although that's kind of changing too. So that's that's kind of one one way to do it. Although I don't think you need a you don't need a continuous glucose monitor, right? That's, that's not the case at all. Um, but so then you can also look at how does your blood sugar look after a typical meal? Um, you know, is it spiking up really high? You know, is it going up by more than two or three millimoles maybe? Um, and you know, that maybe says that you sort of still aren't quite, well, either that particular food isn't great for your blood sugar and our blood sugar is super uh, individual, right? So if you and I ate the same carbohydrate, we both ate a banana, we could have completely different blood sugars despite the fact that we were both equally metabolically healthy. Um, so it, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a huge like genetic and microbiota component and all this kind of stuff that we're, we're starting to learn. So, so some basic measurements can tell you that. Uh, longer term, you can look at something like your HbA1c. Um, and again, HbA1c is interesting because it's not comparable between people. So I still work in, in, in old money, I work in percent of HbA1c because we, that's what we do in the, in the US. So, but if I had a, an HbA1c of 5% and you had an HbA1c of 5%, what our average blood sugar was may be very different because again, about a number of different factors, but it is useful within you personally. So if you have an HbA1c of 6% and somebody's like, well, you're, you're pre-diabetic, but then you go on a low carb diet or maybe you lose some body fat or you gain some muscle mass or you know you improve your health and the quality of your diet if your hba1c comes down that's a very useful marker for you individually so not great to compare to other people but great to compare for you um there are some other things you can do like look at your, the ratio of your triglycerides to hdl so you get this on a basic lipid, lipid panel uh, that you could get from your gp um, and it does depend from population to population. So it works fairly well in people of a Northern European ancestry, like you and me, um, but doesn't work as well for, for like black populations and some Asian populations. And this is kind of the downside of, we generate a lot of this data in white populations. And so those are where the markers come from. And we've got a lot of work to do to kind of create some equity in that, but hopefully you know, people are working on that. So, so triglycerides HDL does still work. It's just not as great you know, depending on the population. So, but, so that's one thing, but usually if you reduce your carbohydrate intake, you'll get your triglycerides will almost always come down and triglycerides on their own are a, a pretty decent marker of, of cardiovascular risk and, and stuff like that. Um, and the final thing is just measure your waist circumference. Um, you know, is your waist getting smaller? Um, you know, and you probably, you see across pretty much any study where you look at it, if people lose body fat and so you don't, I don't really care about whether you lose weight or not because weight can be muscle tissue and bone tissue and other things that are really important. What you care about 
but your metabolic health is, is fat tissue. And so just measuring your waist circumference is a great way to do it. So if your waist is getting smaller, in all likelihood, your metabolic health is probably improving. That's great. And something I always say to people as well is listen to your body, because like you say, once you've eaten a meal, you can sometimes tell even in yourself, just your, your mannerisms and your actions and how you feel in your head and how your body feels to what your blood glucose is doing within your body. If you feel all, let's say, jacked up, you know, all ready to go, let's go, then there's a, it's a good indication that you've shot up your blood sugars and you're going up to the spike. And then, then afterwards, you're going to feel all depressed and unhappy as it dips down, down below normal. Um, if, if you look at um, a blood glucose graph and you've got some kind of roller coaster, roller coaster mm. action going on up and down and all over the place, then that's a sign that you're potentially insulin resistant. What you want to be looking for is more stable. Um, you know, everybody's going to rise after a meal post prandially they're going to rise up, but then you want to want it to, to stabilize out and you don't want the roller coaster effect. And I, I think that roller coaster effect, when I talk about the roller coaster effect, because I know a lot of people aren't going to do um, continuous glucose monitors and aren't going to go and get tests and things like that. Yeah. So when I talk about a roller coaster, I just say, think about it emotionally. Are you up one minute and then are you down the next? Are you up and then are you down? If that's the case, you're on a roller coaster, you are, you're insulin resistant. So think about that, you know, get that um, in, into you. And hopefully that makes sense to people that are listening. And <laughs> so something else that I really want to talk to you about are polyunsaturated fats uh, poofers some people call them yeah and um things like seed oils um they're often known as omega-6 and things like that there's a lot of controversy about them you listen to some people and they'll say they're absolute poison get them out of your diet you don't need them at all they're ruining all your cells they're destroying you from the inside out but then there are recent studies to suggest perhaps they're not all that bad could you enlighten us into where we should be heading our thoughts on this one? Yeah, it, it is a really good question. And it, it does depend a little bit on uh, where your interests are focused. Let's put it that way. So my primary research, like you mentioned at the beginning, is the developing brain and the, the injured developing brain. So I'm, I usually, I mean, I guess maybe 70 or 80% of my, my time is, is, is looking at ways to treat either babies born prematurely or babies born, you know, they make it the full way through pregnancy, but then something happens, you know, and, and for whatever reason, they get reduced oxygen or blood flow to the brain, uh, which sort of happens maybe somewhere between 0.1 and 0.5% of the time in, in, in the UK and US. Um, and so in the developing brain, it certainly looks like both from some human data and lots of animal data that if you have a lot of omega-6 in the diet. So we're particularly talking about um, a fat called linoleic acid, which you find in um, soybean oil, uh, what we call canola in the US, what you call rapeseed oil, um, uh, less so sunflower oil. Sunflower oil is usually a bit better, but, but maybe corn oil and some of these other um, sort of plant-based oils have a lot of linoleic acid in them. And when, when there's a lot of this present, uh, and it's increasing in the breast milk because there's so much of it in the diet. We're eating so many fried foods and processed foods that have these seed oils in. And so it, it's kind of this continuous exposure that we have that maybe we didn't have historically. So, you know, now, you know, the amount of linoleic acid in the diet, in our body fat, because most of the fat on our bodies is fat that we ate, um, 
you know, has increased maybe at least two or three times in the last few decades. And sort of if you go back, if you look at hunter-gatherer populations, it, linoleic acid maybe made up like 2% of calories, but now it's like 5, 10, 15%, depending on the, the population. So, it is, so it's increased a lot. And it looks like linoleic acid inhibits or, you know, sort of prevents the normal accumulation of other fats in the brain, which we need. So DHA is one of the, uh, the fats, uh, omega-3s, sort of the quote-unquote good poopers that we get from fish oil or seafood. Um, DHA is incredibly important for the developing brain. And if you have a lot of linoleic acid, and there's been studies where they, you know, babies who, were ha who had formula that was based purely on like plant oils, and then they died for some other reason. If you look at their brain, there's like no DHA in there. It's just full of linoleic acid because it's sort of, they've outcompeted. And we, and we see a lot of data from, from animal models, which is a lot of the work that I do. So for the developing brain, I'm, I'm concerned about this because I'm worried you're not going to get as much DHA into your brain. And then that's important both for like normal function, but also if you get some kind of injury, the amount of inflammation you get and whether you can control that inflammation depends on the poofers that you have available. And if you don't have enough DHA and EPA, then you, you can't really switch off the inflammatory process. So, so, that, so that is important. Um, and, and I think that's also important for like the aging brain. So, you know, if, you, you know, if you're worried about age-related cognitive decline or dementia, DHA is also important there. It's an incredibly complex uh, story, um, but, you know, it, it seems like um, sort of the oxidized products of linoleic acid, um, which you can measure in the blood, seems to be higher in people with Alzheimer's disease. You know, it's probably not great for the brain. Um, conversely, you know, people have, taught, people have heavily promoted these things, uh, plant oils, particularly to replace your butter and your coconut oil and your saturated fats, because they can reduce your levels of cholesterol, particularly your LDL cholesterol. And so it was thought that uh, by consuming more of these oils instead of saturated fats, we can bring down our cholesterol and reduce our heart disease risk. When we've looked at this in clinical trials, randomized clinical trials, the story really isn't that good. And it sort of, it seems to depend really heavily on, you know, the amount, uh, the type of oil, you know, if, um, if you have enough omega-3s to go with it, you don't seem to get a negative effect and you may get some benefit. Uh, but if you have just a whole boatload of omega-6s with no omega-3s to go with it, then actually it may increase your cardiovascular risk. But again, the evidence isn't strong either way, it's kind of muddy. Um, equally, if you look at, again, so I mentioned earlier that most of the fat on your body is fat that you ate. And when you look at people's body fat, linoleic acid content, which has increased, uh, but the people who have more linoleic acid in their body fat, which is a better marker of them having eaten more of that type of fat than asking them what they ate, because nobody remembers what they ate. But if I, if I look at the linoleic acid in your, in your body fat, there's at least one study that says if you have higher levels suggesting that you ate more, that's associated with reduced heart disease risk and uh, reduced overall mortality. So if these things were like really bad for your heart and really bad for your brain, if you're eating more of it, you'd expect to die sooner with more heart disease, right? Um, so I think there's, there's definitely some potential downsides. Um, it's probably going to depend on how it comes. So is your diet more balanced in terms of poofers? Like do you have 
seafood and other things in your diet. So this this study, particularly which which found high levels of body fat with with you know improved health outcomes, is in Sweden. They eat a lot of seafood in Sweden. They probably have a slightly you know a, a, an overall much better diet. Sweden, compared to almost other all other countries in the world, is more of a low carb kind of country. So already their their diet is much better. So in the setting of that kind of diet, and you know other good things like probably not that not nearly as much like social inequity, um, you know, a nationalized healthcare system, right? There are lots of things that, that can feed into that, then it doesn't necessarily seem to be bad. Um, but if it's in really poor quality, fried foods, uh, with no other stuff to kind of balance it, um, as you would probably see in the US, um, then I think there's more likely to be uh, a downside. So, so it's super dependent on context. Uh, one other thing, which I think is really interesting, is that they, again, again in Sweden, um, they did a study where they, they overfed healthy guys with muffins, and the muffins were either full of saturated fat or full of poofers, full of linoleic acid. And if there were, then there were various stories about the amount of linoleic acid that we eat sort of driving obesity because of the effect that it has in our fat cells. But what these guys found was actually it said the opposite it was sort of like um, if you get if you gave muffins full of saturated fat and I'm not against saturated fat before we get into this but if it more saturated fat and you were actively overfeeding them right more calories than they needed they tended to gain more fat both in their sort of like general fat stores and in their liver whereas if you gave them a muffin full of linoleic acid full of plant oils they actually didn't gain as much body fat and they gained more muscle tissue and uh, you're just like hang on a second, like, how does that even make sense, right? These things are supposed to be really bad for us. And like, when I read that study, and I can't find much fault in it at all, because they controlled for like the total amount of calorie intake, the total sort of like, everything was really well controlled, although you don't know exactly what those guys were eating the rest of the time. But you know that the where the excess calories came from. And you're just like, if you gain less fat and more muscle tissue, that's probably good for metabolic health and long term health and stuff. So I probably haven't giving you a, a full answer because it's really nuanced so the more time you read about it the more difficult you realize um it is to figure it out but the the kind of the, the overwhelming thing is that it's probably not as bad as we think it is in sort of normal exposure so you know you occasionally eat some nuts you know which is where they come from and as whole nuts i wouldn't worry about the linoleic acid from those but there are some people who are just like i want no omega-6 poopers in my diet whatsoever, I don't think you need to worry about that. So if you've improved the overall quality of your diet um, and you're eating whole real foods, then I, I don't think the poopers matter that much. As long as you know, you, you may be getting some seafood, getting some omega-3s as well. Um, but the probably the, the biggest culprit, which is gonna be these really oxidized, sort of heated, fried omega-6 poopers, like you've probably removed those from your diet. So, so basically all the downsides you've already eliminated. Um, so then you don't need to worry about it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that, that sounds quite confusing for people listening all the way through that. But really, <laughs> just to try and condense it down a little bit, it's all about the ratios. Initially, the ratios, you, you, you want to make sure that if you are getting linoleic acid, if you are consuming omega-6s, and you will be doing because they mm. are everywhere. They're in animal yeah. fats, they're in nuts, seeds, you know. So yeah. you don't think you're not consuming linoleic acid. You are. It's just obviously, like you say, they're higher in processed foods, in processed oils and, and things like that but they are in animal fats. And so, so just think about the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. 
if if your omega-3 your dha and your epa coming from predominantly seafoods you know, fish oils things like that then if you have a high ratio of omega-3 then you're not really going to worry too much about omega-6 because like you say the dha and, and the epa are really going to help your brain help you help your body function focus more on, on those particular fatty acids but also i think it's important again just to to say i often tell people look get 90 get the 90 percent correct if, if you can focus on whole real foods real things that you cook yourself process yourself you know don't rely on these big firms to process it and package it for you do it yourself go out there get the vegetables from your garden or your allotment get the animal produce from your local farmer your butcher if you're doing that and then producing it in your kitchen and nailing down 90 percent of your nutrition yourself then there's no need to worry about that other little 10%, 5% where there's a lot of arguments over, hang on a minute, you need to stop all this linolenic acid omega-6 because mm. it's bad for you. No, it's not. Hang on a minute. It's good for you. No, hang on a minute. This study says it's bad for you. <laughs> so everybody's going to consume it, whether you like it or not, whether you're carnivore, whether you're vegan or whatever, you are going to consume linolenic acid. So just think about it not taking up the vast amount of your nutrition. Uh, hopefully I've summarized it quite well. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's essentially that, which is that, so for the majority of people where lots of linoleic acid may be bad for your health, and it's certainly possible, um, that's the majority of that is going to be coming from highly processed, you know, deep fried, um, you know, um, nutrient poor foods. So if you remove those, first of all, immediately the balance of omega-3 to omega-6 in your diets is going to improve. Um, and then obviously if you're adding some seafood, that's going to do it. So, so basically, again, it, it boils down to, to your exact premise, which is that if you focus on nutrient dense foods, actually you don't need to worry about it because you probably fixed the problem anyway, without having to think about it. Yeah. There's one other thing I just wanted to touch on is the fact that, um, you said earlier about people with all the, the fat that you see on them is the fact that they have eaten the, mm -hmm. uh, linolenic acid and, and that kind of omega-6 fat, but does your body actually control the way it uses the fats and can it change from potentially saturated fat to poofers? Can it somehow decide which one it's going to produce? Yeah. So, so there is a, there is a theory that the type, the exact type of fat released by your fat tissues is controlled and then it, it acts as a signaling molecule to other tissues. So it, in its simplest form, it would be, if it's releasing lots of saturated fat, that is more likely to make your tissues insulin resistant and not necessarily in a bad way. Your, some of your tissues become insulin resistant when you go on say a ketogenic diet because you're sparing glucose for the brain. It's a perfectly normal um, phenomenon um, and it's perfectly healthy. Um, and so in that setting, you might have more circulating saturated fat goes, says this theory because then it's telling as part of how you coordinate between the tissues, they become more insulin resistant relatively so that more glucose is spared for the brain. Conversely, in the setting where there's lots of um, excess energy, say, then you might release more poofers or unsaturated fats, which tells the tissues to be more insulin sensitive to try and like dispose of this stuff. And so that's basically a very short version of a super interesting theory that hasn't really been borne out in humans yet. So there's lots of great data in mice I'm not really certain how much it relates to humans. There is some uh, data to support it. So 
um, there's a there's an interesting study where they they took people and they they put them all on a ketogenic diet, but in half of them they put them on a, a highly unsaturated diet and it was full of like soy nuts and soy bacon and mayonnaise and all this kind of stuff, and the other one was like cheese and meat and dairy. So one's like loads of saturated fat, one's loads of poofa, essentially linoleic acid. And in those, you know, when they compared them, the the ones on the saturated fat version, they had higher blood sugar. Um, they had higher cholesterol and they had lower ketone levels. Whereas on the polyunsaturated diet, on the PUFA diet, the omega-6, they had lower glucose, lower cholesterol, higher ketones, and were more insulin sensitive. So that so the the, the fat that you take in uh, does seem to be able to regulate your insulin sensitivity. Now, again, I don't think that that means that everybody who goes low carb should be like slamming all the omega-6s because it's going to make them more um, insulin resistant, insulin sensitive. I think long-term, there's some potential downsides to that. Uh, but so there is some credence to that theory based on that. But, you know, in terms of how exactly all the circulating fats in your blood sort of regulate insulin sensitivity, I, I think we're still we're still working on that. We, we, we don't know the full answer yet. Yeah, that's great. And I think everything that I'm trying to poke a finger at today with you are little things. But then, as you often say, it's within the overall nutrition. Yeah. You've got to think of it as within the whole thing. Is that you're never going to point a finger at one thing and say that's it. That's what's doing it. It's the omega six, or it's the way we produce fat, or it's it's the low carb. You're never going to be able to do it. You've got to really consider it under the whole term of what is your nutrition? How does your nutrition look on a whole scale throughout everything with the nutrient density, the protein, the low carb, the omega-6, the omega-3? How does everything fit into that, that pigeonhole? And everybody's going to be different. Everybody's bio-individual and everybody's got their own individual goals. I'm a triathlete. I train. So obviously my goals are going to be at certain times. I need more carbohydrates than yeah. other times. I know you exercise quite a bit as well, and you focus on protein. And um, talk about, do you think that we get enough protein? Can we get enough protein from our diets, from our nutrition? Or are supplements something to maybe consider? Yeah, that, that is uh, a good question. Uh, I think particularly for people who have an athletic or a body composition goal, I mean, protein is, is probably the most important thing. Um, and when you're talking about body composition, um, obviously protein is necessary to, to make and maintain muscle tissue. Um, and when you go low carb, so, cause we talked about earlier how insulin is a main signal to stop you breaking down tissues, right? And so that includes muscle tissue. So when you go low carb or keto, it seems like you need more protein because protein then becomes the, the main macronutrient that creates insulin. So you, you need relatively more protein to maintain the same muscle mass. Now, it's not a problem. It just means you need to, you know, if you have an athletic goal and you're on a ketogenic diet and you want to maximize your, your muscle mass, then I think you need to eat more protein. Um, and uh, and insulin is, is the reason for that. Um, and when you try and say so you're trying to lose body fat, if you're in a caloric deficit, which you need to create if you want to lose body fat, having more protein uh, you and, and doing some kind of exercise, some kind of resistance training, if you can, that means you're going to be more likely to lose that weight from body fat as, as you're in a deficit than you are for muscle tissue. And that's like that's the whole that's the whole goal. You, know, you want to lose more fat than you lose muscle because 
you're going to lose muscle as you get older anyway. And it's one of the most important things to keep you alive. Um, so muscle is critically important. And there's also some increasing data to suggest that protein is really important in endurance athletes. Again, particularly for recovery, you know, you guys probably don't, you don't want to carry a load of excess muscle tissue around, right? It's slow, it's energetically expensive, but you, but getting in enough protein is also important for recovery. So if you then think about where this is going to come from, you can easily get enough from your diet, but it's probably going to involve eating a lot more uh, and of pro like protein sources of food than you're probably used to. Um, and, so, and this is particularly the case again, you know, so if you're eating um, a, a carbohydrate rich diet, it matters less because again, that insulin is going to help keep your, your muscle tissue. But if you're restricting your carbohydrates, then you're, you're probably going to have to eat a lot of meat and fish and eggs and dairy. Um, or, and then, so alternatively, you know, protein powders and supplements can come into play if, you know, sitting down to two pounds of steak at dinner is, is something that doesn't entice you. It's never been a problem for me, but I, I appreciate that some people find that difficult. So, this, so then, yes, yeah, supplements can, can become important, particularly, again, like I said, body composition or athletic goals, getting in enough protein is, is, is incredibly important. But equally, if you focus on, so um, you probably heard of Dr. Ted Naiman, who's, who's sort of big in, in the low carb sphere. He actually lives not that far from me. And he will just say, you know, if you try and eat 200 grams of protein a day, just like it's going to be so much harder to fill your your like your plate with all this other junk that that doesn't have protein in it. So just like it, it's also very useful to displace other foods. It's also very satiating, like all these other things. So so yeah, focusing on protein-rich foods and like protein as a major macronutrient, particularly if you're low carb, is like important and, and useful for a number of reasons. Yeah, that's great. And I think that also links into what I say as well. If you are, like you say, trying to eat as much protein as you can, and we need the protein, we need the protein to build a strong body, and we need it to focus on our lifestyle as well, making sure that we're able to go up and down the stairs, making sure that we're not going to fall over and break our ankle. We need to build this strong body all the way through our life for our longevity. If you're making sure that you're focusing all your meals on protein, then what comes along with the protein is also the nutrient density, which is where obviously I shoot from. And that's they're the things that keep you satiated throughout the whole day. If your plate looks like a big stack a protein then be sure you're getting plenty of nutrition there as well so it ticks all the boxes in, in my opinion and, and that's why obviously i'm aiming from there but just one other thing let's touch on lifestyle because i know this is something that i've begun to follow as an endurance athlete and something that a lot of people wherever you come from can follow and it's um high explosive activity mm -hmm. talking about eating protein to make sure that we can be strong and, and live long and healthy and things like that. But also I think people need to start building into their lives a high explosive activity. And when I say it like that, it sounds pretty daunting, but mm. it's something like jumping up and down on the spot, you know, not for long, a minute, let's say, uh, or just have a sprint down the street to the nearest lamppost. T tell us why that's important. Yeah, that, uh, that, that's a great question. And uh, particularly important, again, for endurance athletes uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and so, so you're right. If we, if we try and think about um, the, fact, you know, the fact that muscle is, the, the amount and strength of your muscle tissue is one of the best predictors of long-term health um, and, and total longevity. And 
part of it is because like muscle is a great metabolic buffer and all these other things, you know, when you exercise, it sort of, it reduces inflammation. It can do great things for your brain, like all these other things. But it, it's also a much simpler fact, which is that when you get to a certain age, falling and breaking your hip is one of the worst things that you could do for your longevity because you basically have a 50% chance of dying the year after because you're going to be immobilized, you're going to be in hospital, you're going to get pneumonia um, and all kinds of bad stuff happens after that. So basically, you know, you know, everybody talks about heart disease, you know, and then maybe they talk about cancer and maybe they talk about stroke. Um, you know, that's so heart disease like the, is the, you know, when you talk about a low carb diet and high protein, it's going to cause heart disease. Like that's what everybody focuses on. But if you get into your 70s or 80s, what you really want to avoid is falling over. Um, and so when you think about when you stumble, there's this automatic reaction where you stick a foot out to stop yourself falling. And there's a certain type of muscle fiber, type two muscle fibers are fast twitch muscle fibers, we call them, are essential for doing that. If you're an endurance athlete, all you're doing is you're training the other type of muscle tissue. Uh, muscle fibers potentially at the expense of the fast twitch ones so you know they they joke that you know marathon you know those the marathon runners who can who can basically run for two hours at a speed that i couldn't do for 10 seconds right but they can't jump up onto a box because they don't have that explosive force right so they're incredibly efficient and they have these great type of muscle fibers but they don't have that explosive movement and that's fine right now but in 40 years time, when they want to stay upright, it becomes a problem. Um, so that's why these fast twitch muscle fibers are incredibly important. Um, and the way, the way you train them, again, like you said, doesn't have to be that daunting, right? Nothing that we talk about in terms of exercise or um, you know, the things that you need to do to improve your, your muscle mass or your strength or your long-term health, none of it requires any fancy equipment. You don't need to go to the gym. You don't need to slog away for hours and hours. Um, but just doing the you know, like star jumps right or like go up the stairs as fast as you can or you know again jumping on the spot all this is great you're going to train those muscle fibers and i i, I often recommend uh, the work of a friend of mine called daryl edwards he has something called primal play um and he's i mean he's incredibly strong like and he's i mean he basically never lifted a barbell but he probably deadlifts he, he could deadlift as much as i can and he spends all his time like um walking on tiptoes jumping, uh, doing bear crawls, um, you know, it's basically how can you do really useful health promoting, strength promoting exercise with no equipment at home in a way that's fun. Uh, would definitely recommend that you look up his work because that's essentially what he hates exercising, but he does all this stuff and it's a lot of fun and, you know, he's incredibly fit and strong because of it. So none of it needs to be daunting. None of it needs to be difficult. It can be fun, uh, but you know, in, in the long term, like this is, you know, provided that you, you sort of escape some of those sort of serious chronic diseases, you make it into your 70s and 80s, this is what's going to keep you alive for longer. Yeah, that's great. I mean, when you say exercise and, and things like that, people immediately think, oh, I've got to jump on the treadmill, go to the gym yeah. for hours or whatever. But exercise can be anything in your day. I mean, I've got a little boy and I just play with my little boy. I know you play with your dogs as well. And yeah, you I just wrestle you... with one of my dogs. Yeah, that's yeah, it, that's you know. It. That's it. That's, that's exercise. And then sometimes it can be high and explosive, you know, just yeah. happening to do a, a press up in the middle of it or, you know, yeah. just rolling about on the floor and jumping up quickly, something like that. So Absolutely. exercise is really just, you know, build it into your lifestyle. Like you say, that's great. 
Um, so I've got one last question for you, and it's a, it's a good one, this. <laughs> Although we've spoke about everything being all brought together and there's not one thing to focus on, but what do you think if there is one major thing for long-term longevity, brain health, body health, what's the one thing that you could potentially focus on tomorrow that you wasn't doing today, which could help you for the rest of your life? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to, I'll tailor it slightly. So, um, because, so sleep has, has gotten a lot of good press recently. People are, are like focusing on their sleep. So that's great. So I'm not going to talk about sleep. And, and you talked about nutrient density. Um, so I'm not going to like talk about that because that, that, that's really important. So, so what I think like the most important thing for all those things is how much muscle and strength you have. Um, like I, I really think it's an underrated, um, uh, predictor and essential component of long-term health and metabolic health. Like it's your, it's your best buffer. Um, and so, so it's basically what we were just talking about. But again, the important thing is that it doesn't have to be this arduous process. That, and so this is the reason why it's poo-pooed often by people you know, in, on social media and stuff when you talk about muscle and strength. And you know, it, it's because they, they assume that you're telling people that they have to go and lift weights for two hours every day. And that's absolutely not what I mean, right? It can be all that stuff that we, that we talked about. And you just need to be, so if, if we're thinking about comparing to other people, um, you just, if you're in the top like 25% of the whole population, that you, you like, you, you're already in, in a place where you're so much, you're so much better off in terms of like muscle mass and strength and all this, all this kind of stuff. But just think about what, is it, what does it take for you to be stronger than 75% of people? And it's not very much, um, like to be honest. And that's just a case of the, the, the world that we live in nowadays. And I, I wish everybody you know, was as strong as they could be and had as muscle, much muscle mass as, as they could. Uh, but sadly, that's, that's not really, uh, you know, our world isn't built to focus on that anymore because we don't need to move our bodies that much. So uh, muscle mass and strength, and you know, one of the best predictors of longevity is grip strength. So, you know, and, and just think about like, what does it take to, to improve your grip strength? Like just have a bar and like, how long can you hang from it, right? Can you pick up your shopping and carry it into the house, um, right? With a couple of heavy shopping bags, right? This is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. It doesn't require any fancy equipment. It's not arduous. Um, so just, just thinking about that, how strong is my grip? What can I carry? What can I pick up? And again, it doesn't require fancy equipment. doesn't require a barbell or anything like that. You can do it with stuff at home. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a, that's an underrated focus that's, that's really critical for long-term health. Yeah, that's great. That's brilliant. And it's just uh, easy to build into your lifestyle. I think, yeah. I think when you, when you think about it and to people's lifestyles today, they don't really build anything into it other than sitting down and getting up and answering the door. That's perhaps it, but, but you don't have to go back far, just go back a generation or two and remember shaking your great granddad's hand. He absolutely broke yours, didn't he? The strength in those old guys, it was because of their lifestyle. They were farming, digging, you know, doing the manual labor in their lifestyle, in their daily routine. And it was building their strength. So think about that when you're thinking about building it in, into your routine. Just think, well, what did my great granddad do? You know, he, he didn't go to the gym for two out, two, three hours a day, did he? No, he just went outside and dug up the potatoes and, you know, do that every day. That's something, yeah. isn't it? So... Yeah, yeah it, it's just it's just like it's just like using your hand like you want to be able to open open jars and and, and that kind of stuff and you know it, it doesn't really take much uh, to do it just you just 
sort of have to do it rather than relying on tools to help you do it. And I, so I have, a, I have a, an analogy for myself personally. So like when I go in the gym, I would often be limited by my grip on stuff or like, like, cause I'm, I'm doing a movement where the, where I can, one part of me can lift a heavy weight, but my grip becomes the limiting factor. So I'd use straps. And then over time, my grip got weaker and weaker and weaker because I never used it. I just would rely on straps to do it. So like recently, I've spent a lot of time focusing on my grip because I realized that my grip was terrible. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a reasonably big and strong guy, but like when I, if I had to just like pick up and hold something myself, like I'd really slacked off on it and I'd sort of given myself a crutch to, to not have to worry about it. And it was having negative effects because of it. So like even me, it was, it was an important factor that I've, I've realized I wasn't doing as good a job as, as I could have. And, and it doesn't take much to, to really improve that. That's great. And, and you isolated your grip there in that. I think if somebody can think about what happens if I was to stumble and fall over, perhaps then you could think, you know, why not just have a, a little practice in, in stumbling over? You know, let's see how strong you are. Can you actually hold your own body weight up if you were to fall? So People can just think about those little things in their lifestyle about, are you strong enough to support your own body weight? Are you strong enough to do the all the chores around the house that you need to do? And then that will keep you in good stead going forward for longevity, all your health in the future. And I'm pleased you focused on that as the one thing, because obviously they are, there is the other things like the nutrient density and uh, your nutrition and your sleep, especially um, things like that to get right also. But Thank you very much for your time today, Tommy. That's been absolutely brilliant and I've really enjoyed it. And, and I think we've uh, put some ghosts to rest there as well. <laughs> so uh, if people want to follow you and get in touch with you and see the work you are doing, where can they find you? Uh, usually the, the best place is Instagram uh, right now. So uh, at Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. Um, I try and respond to all the messages I get on there. So if, if you have any questions or whatever, just, just shoot, shoot them there. And if it's something that I can, uh, I can easily answer um, in a few sentences. I, I always will. Um, so that's probably the, that's the easiest way to find me. Thank you very much for your time today, Tommy. Great, thank you. Wow, plenty of info to take in there. What a great guest and knowledgeable fellow Dr. Tommy is. I hope we managed to help you understand how your body works in relation to things like insulin, your fat metabolism, and how we break down vitamins and minerals, nutrients, basically, from our foods. As Tommy says, nutrients from animal produce are, on the whole, more bioavailable to our bodies and easier to absorb in their natural form. And whilst the PUFA debate will rage on, depending on your personal views, I feel we set the record straight by highlighting that the focus should be more on real foods and nutrient density so that the poofers make up only a small portion of your diet anyway, especially omega-6 and linolenic acid, that kind of poofer. The other ones, the DHA and the EPA from seafood, things like that, they're the better type of polyunsaturated fat. I enjoyed how Tommy explained that glucose and insulin control are paramount to becoming metabolically flexible. A lower carb nutrition, eliminating those higher processed foods will definitely support this. So I hope you managed to take away some great info from this one. And remember to send me any questions on our Instagram page, our Facebook group, or visit the website humannutritionlifestyle.com 
There's links on there to the email if you want to email. There's also uh, my latest recipes and services that I can offer to you if needed. But until then, have a lovely Christmas. Be safe, be happy, and I'll see you next time.